Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Sergei Yekelchik, author of Ukraine, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Sergei Yekelchik is professor of Slavic studies and history at the University of Victoria and the current president of the Canadian Association for Ukrainian Studies. He's the author of seven books on modern Ukrainian history and Ukrainian-Russian relations, including the award-winning Stalin's Citizens, Everyday Politics in the Wake of Total War, which was published in 2015. Uh, hello, Serhii, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Natalia, and thank you so much for inviting me. So this um, recent publication uh, is some sort of a reference book. Uh, One can find essential and background information about Ukraine in general, and specifically about the current developments in the country as well. This concise format asks uh, to pick information carefully. What was your strategic decision? Well, this book came out in a series which was designed this way in the form of questions and answers. At first, I was a bit uh, apprehensive about the form, but then I actually found out that it was helpful for me as well. Uh, because every time you had to think the about the topic in the context and explain it as if starting a new, uh, not continuing the book, the, the book narrative. The book also has this funny subtitle, what... Uh, everyone needs to know. And that is, of course, not something I invented, but rather the subtitle of the entire series, the name of the series, what everyone needs to know. Um, And the book also came my way rather unexpectedly in this format. Um, It was during the early stages of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, when I was actually working on a totally different project, that um, Oxford University Press got in touch with me asking whether I would be interested in contributing to this series because to them the Ukrainian question was very obviously one of the most important questions in world politics at the time and it actually remains so today. What we had to go through with the press however was the change of titles. My original contract for the first edition was for the book um, called The Crisis in Ukraine. But by the time I finished the book, um, I proposed to the press that crisis had the connotation of Ukrainians being somehow responsible for it, and then decided to go with the conflict in Ukraine, and this is what the first edition was called. But of course, by the time of the second edition in 2020, the conflict in Ukraine also seemed like a term which did not clearly demonstrate the importance of what was going on in Russia's role and the importance of the Western reaction. And after a very long discussion with the press, we settled on the uh, title Ukraine. Uh, not just because not just because this is the, the most recent edition and this is the previous edition, the conflict, the uh-huh. green uh, and brown editions, both with excellent photographs. Yes. Um, in the case of this most recent edition, it's actually a photograph by a well-known Ukrainian military photographer, uh, Dmitry Muravsky. Uh, a photograph of Ukrainian soldier against the background of a uh, uh, of a Ukrainian industrial landscape in Mariupol, and so and so it actually, in a sense, demonstrated the evolution of how the Ukrainian problem is perceived in the world. 
first from a crisis, which is somehow the internal affair of Ukraine, then to the conflict, the recognition of a war, and the Russian role in it. And then finally, one last step to Ukraine's importance for even the American presidential elections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very glad that you made this note on the um, uh, change of titles, because yes, indeed, that's how the uh, um, present situation is perceived uh, in the international context very often that they uh, speak about specifically crisis. Uh, also to this, very often um, uh, the uh, identity crisis is added as well. So, and um, I hope that uh, we will have this opportunity also to uh, talk about uh, your um, um, your understanding of this concept in general of Ukrainian, uh, of uh, identity crisis in Ukraine, and if uh, whether it is productive and efficient to speak about identity crisis in Ukraine. Um, at the present moment. Right. This is an enormously important question, especially in the light of developments since the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, Both editions of the book are dedicated to my uh, late mother-in-law. And the introduction actually begins with this point, uh, that she was a Russian speaker who could barely speak Ukrainian, but a political Ukrainian. Uh, who followed the events until very late, until literally the last days of her life, and having a very clear position on that. And that I wanted to use this introduction as an entry point into the discussion of identities. There is quite a bit of this in the book, but it's really about the way identity is used by political forces. Because in reality, of course, most Ukrainian citizens, wherever they live, share very similar concerns with corruption, inefficiency, they don't want war. But nevertheless, in the last two decades in particular, the Ukrainian parties managed to build the machine, uh, the electoral machine which uses media uh, and a set of hot button topics which keep changing in order to mobilize the electorate. And this is particularly true of the legacy of the Communist Party of Ukraine, uh, which was subsequently picked up this mantle of the opposition by the party of regions, and now, of course, by the oppositional uh, program uh, for life. Um, And this is the legacy of creating artificial divisions and using them strategically in in the interest of electoral uh, progress. But I have to say that there was a really important lesson for all Ukrainians resulting from this with the Russian invasion. Because it seemed to those who voted for the party of regions and before that for the Communist Party of Ukraine and subsequently for the oppositional platform, it seemed that they were basically the Ukrainian opposition. But no, the Russian tanks rolled in, arrived from the Russian border, and it turned out that Mr. Putin had the exact same concept of Ukrainian identity as Yanukovych, um, and as the current uh, Medvedchuk, uh, Rabinovich, and other leaders of the opposition. It was not just the political fight within Ukraine itself, not to mention, not to mention, but it really is an artificial fight, because uh, the 
uh, Ukrainian identity after the revolution of dignity is not defined by ethnic markers. It is defined by civic markers. So any person who is in a position to Putin is, by definition, part of political Ukrainian identity. And this is why we have political refugees from Russia and Ukraine. But of course, what, what also was an important lesson was that identity games are not limited to the country. They do not reflect any particular objective realities. Uh, behind them, there is a neighboring empire, which is nostalgic for its great power status and which can arrive any moment at your door if you continue to insist on these being essential values. It's also well known, it, was, uh, it has been shown by sociologists that the dividing line, the front line, uh, it's not the division marked by language or ethnic identity at all, uh, but rather by the attitude to the Soviet past. It is the attitude to Stalinism that separates uh, those fighting for the freedom of Ukraine and those fighting for the preservation of the Russian Empire in some new form. So, uh, I'm not going to dismiss, no way, uh, the Ukrainian ethnic identity as a marker. It is enormously important. But what contemporary sociological research is showing is that an interesting thing is happening in Ukraine after the revolution of dignity. People agree on the importance of the Ukrainian language, even if they are not using it in everyday life. Um, and my friend and colleague Volodymyr Kulik is writing about this in a variety of texts. And it's, it's a stunning phenomenon. What it means really is that the Ukrainian ethnic identity became the marker of political freedom and democracy. That people feel that yes, the Ukrainian language, our ethnic tradition stands for something much bigger now. Uh, for the idea of democratic Ukraine, uh, of self-determination, uh, of which is opposite to the late imperial world of Putin's Russia. And of course, what is going to happen in the long run is that generations will change and uh, the Ukrainian ethnic identity will become even closer aligned with democratic choice. And when Russia promoted the beginnings of the conflict in the Donbass, even at this stage before the arrival of the Russian troops, at the stage when the Russian security agencies were organizing various meetings, um, there was a very interesting statement from uh, one uh, future leader of separatists, um, which outlined the main reason for, for the rebellion. And that was the cultural genocide, he said. But what cultural genocide he had in mind was this. when uh, He said that when children and grandchildren go to school, they come back Ukrainians. So that, to him, was a cultural genocide of the Donbass. But it's not of the Donbass, it's of the Soviet legacy. That's what it is at stake. And that's why uh, the separatist leaders and the handlers in the Kremlin are so fond of celebrating uh, of, uh, of Soviet tanks, of various traditions of World War II, because it takes them back to Stalinism, straight away where they want to go. And indeed, some of them realized that the new generation uh, being educated in Ukraine understand this connection between the Ukrainian language and culture and democracy and the possibility to travel in Europe and being perceived in the world as part of a new and exciting movement as opposed to a stalwart conservative uh, dictatorship on Mr. Putin's model.
Some scholars uh, say today that um, it would be probably better for Ukraine if Russia continues to be an anti-democratic state, uh, because this way Russia will be less uh, probably uh, attractive uh, to those who are uh, or could be uh, interested in joining um, uh, Russia. So uh, would you agree with this viewpoint? I'm not sure I would. Um... But I'm not sure I would see the end of the tunnel uh, in either scenario. The problem is really that no leader of, of, of the opposition in Russia, to the degree to which opposition really exists in Russia, uh, is prepared to recognize the criminal character of Russian uh, policies in Ukraine. Uh, Ksenia Sobchak was the only one who had the courage to say that Crimea is Ukrainian, and even that she qualified by saying according to the international law. Right. So it was not her, really speaking, but but uh, the objective reality, which was actually a nice move. I applaud her for that. But there are no, um, to my knowledge, among the leaders of the Russian opposition, a person who would openly and clearly at this moment say that the Russian attack on Ukraine was and continues to be criminal, that the Russian persecution of Crimean Tatars in Crimea is criminal, and Russia would have one day to answer questions uh, related to that. So there is actually a serious problem there. But, um, and this is discussed also uh, in the book as well, the Ukrainian question is by now an important international issue. And I have to say that there are parallels in mind for that. Two very clear ones, and also very instructive ones. The first one is the Polish issue, which was a major international problem already in the 19th century. Already Napoleon realized that he could uh, mobilize the Polish uh, ideas of resistance against the Russian Empire. The Polish question continued to be important for the West until the end of World War I. And at the end of World War I, the West created an independent Poland. Even so, Ukrainians would have issues about the territories included into Poland. But let's look at a, into another issue in the 20th century, the Jewish issue, which was seen by the West widely as defining uh, democracy, because the countries which did not allow Jews to emigrate to Israel, which did not want to recognize uh, the Holocaust, were the dictatorial countries, were the Soviet Union and his, uh, in the Soviet Union's uh, socialist satellites. And so the Jewish issue became, at that point, a very important one, linked to democracy, human rights, and ultimately to the Soviet collapse. And its ultimate solution was, of course, in the Soviet collapse, when people became free uh, to decide where they would want to live and uh, to build a new inclusive memory. And I'm going to venture and say that the Ukrainian issue by now became just in the same way as the Polish issue in the 19th century and the Jewish issue in the 20th century, a litmus test of democracy. And it really is one of those issues on which the difference between the West and Russia is constructed. The ideas of democracy are tried against this kernel of the Ukrainian issue. It's not accidental, of course, that Trump ended up facing impeachment uh, trial because of his involvement in Ukraine. And so 
when the issue acquires this connotation to universal democracy, world politics, and human rights, it means history is on your side, ultimately, sooner or later, right? Um, and of course, given the situation in Russia, we cannot really hope for its quick resolution. But let me also remind you, viewers, that um, Lenin actually gave a talk to socialist youth in Switzerland a few months before the revolution, and he told them that he was not going to see the revolution in his lifetime. Perhaps them, the young people born around 1900, would see the revolution. Of course, the revolution happened in two months, uh, propelling him very soon to leadership. So um, it all depends on the transition from Mr. Putin's regime to the next um, figure in power and whether this transition is going to happen during the economic crisis. Uh, and I could see several scenarios under which the Ukrainian question would become the kernel of defining new democratic Russia. I wish for that to happen. Um, I'm not convinced it will. Was it Volodymyr Vinichenko who said that uh, Russian democracy ends where Ukrainian uh, question starts? It does. But you know what? So many former empires in the world went through it. It took them decades, but not centuries usually. And the problem with the Russian empire is, of course, that it was immediately replaced by the Soviet Union, which was also an empire in a certain way. And so the Russians never saw the reckoning with imperial legacy. And so if you look at the French experience and the British experience, they are really in the early to middle stages of dealing with the legacy of empire, and they're dealing with it in a rather aggressive way, in a, in a way of denying the problem. So there is for Ukraine uh, a very long period of waiting here, and this waiting can be used for a good purpose. And good purpose does not mean populist rhetoric. <laughs> a good purpose actually means meaningful reforms, because, as you know, all of us in Ukrainian studies keep comparing the starting points of Poland and Ukraine in the 1980s, only to conclude that these were two very similar economies uh, with difference in agriculture, so the private land holding in Poland. Uh, and then, 30 years later, uh, we couldn't have been more different than we are now from Poland. And the difference is um, an unambiguous attitude to the communist past. Whereas in the Ukrainian case, and this is one of the major themes in the book, the Soviet past lingered on because some political forces found it useful and the population was too easily attracted by the populist sloganeering. And also the entire Soviet economy was built really on this foundation with um, one of the largest problems in Ukraine, of course, is central heating uh, in residential uh, districts in big cities, what do you do about central heating if it was designed for socialism? Uh, if, it's not, uh, if it's not for one particular house, but for the entire district, how do we deal with this kind of material legacy, which brings with it all kinds of populist expectations among the people as well?
Would you comment on how, for example, uh, Ukraine um, uh, history is used uh, in uh, Ukraine today? Uh, and uh, I'm thinking about this question in relation to how history is, I would say, instrumentalized uh, in the Russian Federation today. And I think uh, partially it's part of this very challenging and difficult process of democratization uh, in, in Russia as well. Well, yes, there is an immediate link here. And this link is very often missed by observers. Um, for instance, when uh, a group of Western scholars was protesting the policies of decommunization, but it was, they were, I think, really protesting not the decommunization as such, but rather the creation of a, a canon of national heroes mm -hmm. at the same time, which was seen as sacred. Uh, the point which was missed back then was the fact that the Ukrainian policy was a direct reply to the Russian one, because it was, in fact, Russia, which just previously made official that the Soviet mythology of the Great Patriotic War was the only correct version. And any attack on this version uh, would have serious, including criminal consequences. So Ukraine was, in, in, in so doing, engaging into the war of, uh, in the war of memory with Russia. But I think the Ukrainian authorities later on started realizing that being locked in this war is not really the way to go, because it's not only about World War II, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's also about the legacy of the Russian Empire, um, about the cities named after the Russian empresses, which would not qualify under any decommunization legislation at all, and yet it was very clear to everybody in Ukraine that the city in question had to be renamed, right? Uh, so it was a bigger one. But also, I think uh, the Ukrainian government already under President Poroshenko in his early years realized that we don't have to fight this memory war on the Russian terms. Because if we do, we will basically play into Mr. Putin's game and help him mobilize the population in our own uh, eastern and southern regions. Rather, uh, President Poroshenko's government made a very smart move to reintroduce the uniforms of uh, the Ukrainian People's Republic in the army and make the Ukrainian Revolution of 1917 to 1921 the focus of new uh, memory politics. I think that was a really, really smart move. It provoked uh, some crazy statements from, uh, from the Russian leadership about Ukraine never being really in existence and the Bolsheviks creating Ukraine for some reason in the 1920s, which was so easy to rebuff. And also it meant that Russia walked into this trap. It now acknowledged that Ukraine was not only about World War II and Bandera, that it was a much longer uh, state, a much, much longer project uh, and the state with longer historical roots. And from the Ukrainian Revolution, you could go back into the 19th century and beyond it. And I think it's a very productive move as well. Uh, it's quite significant that under the new um, administration of President Zelensky, there was no radical uh, rethinking of memory politics in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, some observers expected, for instance, the Institute of National Memory to be disbanded. Um, that did not happen. Uh, the new director of the Institute of National Memory does continue. Uh, in, in principle, some major some major political uh, trends of the previous one. So it's 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 now the impression uh, of of mine and and other experts uh, 
that you, it's not just about Mr. Poroshenko, it's not about Bandera, it's about not giving up under the Russian assault. And any government would have to uh, maintain a consistent and serious politics of memory under the circumstances of Ukraine. Also, given that on the Polish side, uh, Ukraine uh, is experiencing issues in trying to reconcile the two versions of national history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, what you just said made me think about um, how we approach um, not just Ukrainian history, but let's say Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian language in general. And uh, what you said that uh, some approaches are not quite productive, I would also extrapolate them on this issue uh, of the Ukrainian language, which unfortunately even today sometimes in some research appears in comparison with the Russian language. And going back to the 19th century, there is still the sentiment to compare the development of the Ukrainian language and the Russian language. And again, it uh, creates automatically, a priori, this very uh, uh, unproductive, I would say, comparative uh, comparative context, which not always um, works, um, especially, which not, uh, which not always works, especially for the representation of Ukraine, of Ukrainian culture and lit- literature as something that is self-sufficient. Uh, of course, we cannot like detach ourselves completely from the Russian Empire because we are in the context of that um, political body. But still, there is too much emphasis on uh, this comparative analysis, which quite often is not very productive. Ukraine should not remain in the shadow of Russia. And it's not really the shadow of Russia as such, but rather the shadow of the Russian Empire. Um, and it, it only means that the Ukrainian historians and specialists on Ukrainian culture and language should really be looking for the European context. There is nothing new in such a slogan. It comes from the 1920s, uh, not to Moscow, but to Europe. And it can be done. It can be done easily. And especially, I think, now when after two popular revolutions, Ukraine is becoming an important symbol for the West and for the world itself. In recent protests in Hong Kong, for instance, they were inspired by uh, Lithuanian and Ukrainian examples from, from the late Soviet years. And the revolution of dignity and the Orange Revolution are connected to various protest movements around the world. I think Ukrainian uh, legacy here is becoming a part of worldwide democratic tradition, the movement for uh, freedom and equality in the global context and against the empires which refuse to die their natural death. So Ukraine can be seen not only in the European but in the global context as a really important example, as a really important case study. And it's no accident that these days, especially in political science and more generally in social sciences, you see a number of people attracted to Ukrainian topics who are not really representatives of Ukrainian diaspora, who are not originally from Ukraine like you and I, uh, but, but because it is so important in social sciences now, in sociology and political science and other fields, as an example of new and exciting, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this new and exciting development Uh, which empowers the people is something that's really missing in old Europe because the old Europe really knows these movements under in its in the populist packaging um, or kind of strange leftist packaging. But the Ukrainian case 
is um, not only instructive but important as an example. So I think Ukraine is, uh, Ukraine has arrived on the world scene and European scene as a country to study, the country which, which shows the important trends in the world. And that also, of course, propels the issue of the Ukrainian language into a totally different uh, level because what you get there is the Ukrainian language used to be used to be seen in the context of those languages disappearing in the 19th century and practically not being in use uh, today, and also the declining movements for autonomy in certain parts of Europe. But no, these movements actually came back uh, in those parts of Europe, and the Ukrainian language now is also seen in a different context, in the context of globalization represented by English and how the European countries are protecting their cultural legacy against uh, globalization. Uh, and the Ukrainian example is also wonderful because the Ukrainian language is so closely collect, connected to democracy, mm-hmm. which even in the time of Shevchenko was clear. Back then, the, Rus- the Russian oppositional figures were a bit bolder, and they could say that Shevchenko is a great example to them because he represented the people, democracy, and at the same time he represented the quest of going back to the national roots away from an oppressive empire. And this role of Ukrainian, I think, uh, persists today, big time. I do deal with the issues of language quite quite a bit in this yes. book, especially because of Crimea and the Donbass. And the tendency in the West also to explain everything by statistical calculations of how many people of Russian ethnic background live in a certain province, or how many Ukrainian speakers live in this region. But this is really not an explanation of itself, because because the question should have been, do you consider the Ukrainian language and culture important, really, and decisive, defining for modern Ukrainian identity? And this is a question modern sociologists ask now. And I think think there is no going back on on this, really. Mm -hmm. So we should be proud of of uh, uh, the issue, which is so so painful, really, because of this long history it brings with it, now becoming visible to the world. I would like to go back to <clears throat> to the topic um, about the revolution of dignity and the Orange Revolution, and uh, in fact, these two revolutions uh, took place within ten years. Um, uh, uh, well, would you uh, talk a little bit about these two uh, phenomena, not in um, comparison, but uh, in terms of um, what they revealed and uh, your take on the fact that one nation went through these, I would say, two major revolutions for the contemporary um, development of Ukraine within 10 years? Well, yes, there's actually the entire... Um section in the book dealing with that, with the differences and similarities between the two revolutions. And they're very similar in a way, um, because the aims of both revolutions were similar. First of all, democracy, equal opportunity, uh, recognition of uh, human rights, and the removal of authoritarian governments orienting themselves towards Russia. But there were significant differences between the two revolutions. 
And that is primarily that during the Orange Revolution, the oppositional political forces were still basically ahead of the people. They have prepared the huge television screens on the Maidan before the protesters showed up. Um, and they benefited from the revolution in a big way, but were unable to convert this victory into a meaningful reform and promotion of democracy in Ukraine. Unfortunately, the legacy of President Yushchenko remains very ambiguous because of that. There was so much hope invested into him. I think this is actually the explanation uh, of why he is seen this way, because any other president in his position without a radical reform agenda, without this popular mandate coming straight from the people, would have been evaluated differently by historians. But he came as a victor of the revolution with all these uh, popular expectations invested into him, and that's why he failed uh, so much in the narratives of modern historians. But of course, the Orange Revolution was also more peaceful. And that is interesting, because there were some of the same actors in the picture. There was the Russian government um, working behind the scenes. Uh, there were also the right-wing Ukrainian groups, which in the West, as in Russia, are very often showcased as the explanation for everything in Ukraine. So they were on the ground, and yet no violence happened. And that makes me think about the connection uh, between these two components, Russia being behind the scene and the right wing being on scene. Um, but in the second revolution, of course, enormous violence resulted, and it was this violence, the violent response, uh, the violent um, action of the authorities, which made the revolution different, which produced the uh, new martyrs for the revolution, the heavenly hundred. So what was different then in, in this situation? Well, and I think the explanation has to start with the fact that the Ukrainian authorities knew already the outcome of the Orange Revolution. So the Yanukovych regime was aware that this is what is going to happen if you start giving up. And so they probably listened more to the advice from Russia, according to the uh, information available through various leaks. And the second one, of course, during the Orange Revolution, President Kuchma remained in charge, technically. And he was a lame duck president with a very bad reputation in the West, with a heavy involvement of his family into the Ukrainian economy, lots of vulnerabilities. Uh, if it were up to Yanukovych, the Orange Revolution could have been very violent and perhaps not even won by the protesters. But uh, the role of Kuchma was really decisive in this way because he wanted to reach the compromise. He did not switch completely to the Russian side. He was thinking like the oligarchical families often do about his own interests and the interests of his own family. And that was good for the revolution. And we do not get that really uh, in, in the revolution of dignity. And so the revolution of dignity then more decisive also because now, there is a sacred symbol of the heavenly hundred people who gave their gave up their lives for the for the democratic Ukraine, and it is more difficult uh, for the victors of the revolution of dignity uh, because it would have been more difficult for them to go for any compromises. 
And of course, the tenure of President Poroshenko has yet to be evaluated by historians because he is still very much active in Ukrainian politics and who knows what is uh, in his uh, political future. But really, uh, as a president of the revolution and war, he came into the office much more disadvantaged than Yushchenko. Mm-hmm. But it is clear already at this point that his contribution to the uh, economic reform and uh, transparency and uh, his politics when it came to the national memory and media played an enormous role. And even so, uh, he was in power during the conflict with during the war, during um, the Russian aggression, he managed to do quite a few important things, really. And one of them, which is not often credited to him, was in fact building a viable Ukrainian army. A Ukrainian army which uh, is able to withstand uh, Russian pressure on the front line. Uh, So short of a major invasion, Russia cannot possibly hope now for what seemed achievable in 2014 when various political scientists were projecting the Russian tanks in Kyiv uh, in one week, right? This can no longer happen, a projection like that. Of course, the clue to that is not the uh, fine administrative skills of President Poroshenko, but the enormous involvement of the Ukrainian society, the volunteers. And that involvement happened in part because the Orange Revolution ended so inconclusively. And because the Yushchenko presidency was such a failure in many areas. And so the society really felt that they were doing it for the second time and they must ensure that uh, the legacy of the revolution is respected and the ideas of the revolution are implemented. Have you noticed, by the way, that um, after this disastrous appearance at night on the Maidan, when the leaders of the opposition were saying, oh, we've reached the agreement with Yanukovych, and then they were booed by the crowd, uh, at which point they said, oh, no, 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 okay, we're going back to Western negotiators. And this is that was the night when Yanukovych fled mm-hmm. from his residence, of course. After that, the Ukrainian leaders do not really like showing up on Maidan. <laughs> the political ceremonies have been moved decisively into space created by the Ukrainian revolution of 100 years ago, uh, St. Sophia. Mm-hmm. So that tradition remains. And the official explanation at some point was that, well, Maidan is a place where we go to honor the memory of the fallen and it would not be appropriate and such. But no, it's not just that. It is that Maidan is a place of citizen political action where civil society can take you up on your promises, uh, which actually did happen on, I think, the second anniversary of the revolution, possibly the first anniversary of the revolution, when uh, the authorities wanted to pay respects at, at the monument on uh, Institutska. Uh, and for that reason, there was a barrier constructed separating the authorities from the crowd. And then, of course, the people started shaking and shaking this barrier uh, with the same slogans as during the revolution, because this is our legacy. It's mm-hmm. not yours legacy or not just yours. And so Maidan, I think, preserves a really important revolutionary potential as a symbol in Ukraine. Um, 
Of course, what comes with it is an attempt by various forces to use Maidan as a symbol for their own purposes, but it also remains an important mobilizing tool. And so the society can better control the authorities today. I do describe in the, in the book actually some um, very naive or perhaps misguided or perhaps um, not really reflecting the true strategic interests of Ukraine, steps of President Zelensky and how the protests were so easy to organize against it on the Maidan and um, near the presidential administration, precisely because of this legacy. People knew what you need to take with you when you go to protest. Uh, this is how you communicate with your uh, peer group, people who would come with you, because this legacy remains with us. And so Zelensky had to reverse himself repeatedly on the issues of uh, most importantly, I think, uh, first indicating that uh, he would allow uh, the elections in the Donbass, in the occupied areas of the Donbass to proceed and then reversing himself and going back straight to the position uh, as formulated by President Poroshenko, that it cannot possibly happen while the Russian troops are present and Ukraine does not control the border. Right. So it's, it seemed like Zelensky naively or perhaps not just naively was trying to walk into this trap. At which point it was so easy to mobilize the legacy of the Maidan of people to show up and say, well, no, I'm sorry, this is going to be the betrayal of the revolution. And in a sense, as a historian, I feel that that was not the case after the Orange Revolution. That the society was still hopeful that the revolutionary authorities would do it for them. But by now, I think the Ukrainian civil society realizes no. No authorities can be trusted with that, <laughs> not even Poroshenko. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, they have to be present and vigilant and ready to mobilize because this is the new country for which all of us have to take the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a few questions about uh, the Crimea, about the annexation of Crimea, but uh, like they say today, the more um, correct legal term will be occupation. Uh, so in 2014, uh, to many, uh, this uh, invasion and the uh, occupation of Crimea um, was some sort of a shock, uh, but... Um, if we go back to the 90s, the conversation about Russia planning to take back the Crimea was there already in the 90s. Uh, however, on the public level, this conversation wasn't visible. And probably as many uh, Ukrainians, um, you would agree that uh, on those trips to the Crimea, we wouldn't hear that much on the local, right, on the local level, on the public level, that well, actually Crimea should be... Uh, Russian territory, not Ukrainian territory. So uh, I, uh, my question uh, is about those main preconditions or pre um, prerequisites uh, for this kind of move on the side of Russia. Uh, what steps uh, today can be undertaken to restore the integrity of Ukrainian territories? And uh, uh, what's the role of the international uh, community um, uh, in this process as well? Well, let me start with the last part of your question, Natalia. The role of the international community is clearly defined because most sanctions applied um, to, to individuals and the Russian state and the companies um, are precisely in response to the occupation of Crimea. And very few of them were added subsequently with the war in Donbass and with the shooting of, uh, of the Malaysian Airlines uh, commercial flight. But 
it was in fact the annexation of Crimea which prompted the original and actually quite powerful response from the West in the form of sanctions. Whether they work as intended is a different issue. But the West clearly takes the same view, which is a long-term view, as with the Baltic states. Mm. When in 1940, um, the leading Western countries did not recognize the Soviet occupation of independent Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, they continued not recognizing it until the very end of the Soviet Union, and they maintained diplomatic representations of these countries in London and, and the United States. Uh, so this is going to be the long-term strategy of the West, but of course how it will be resolved is a different issue. But uh, the Ukrainian role here, you are right, is unfortunately um, the one which cannot be held out as an example. Uh, what happened with the Crimea was that um, the Ukrainian authorities in the early 1990s made a compromise with the Crimean authorities. And that is the legacy of Kravchuk. Um, he was very well attuned to bureaucratic games within the Soviet bureaucracy. And of course, people running the Crimea at the time were his fellow communist apparatchiks, who in fact pushed through the creation of the Crimean Autonomous Republic, not for the Crimean Tatars, but for the Russian elites already in the Crimea. That was the compromise which uh, Kravchuk has reached with them. And that established the Ukrainian position vis-a-vis -vis the Crimean Tatars from the very start as the bad position, really. Uh, so there was a lot of rhetoric about the rights of the Crimean Tatars and such, but in reality, the early Ukrainian independent state of the 1990s sided with the Russian bureaucrats, Leonid Grach and others who were running the Crimea, then um, under the aegis of the Communist Party of Crimea. And subsequently, of course, the party of the regions arrived uh, much, much later. The communists continued to control Crimea for a long time. But that was a political compromise, which perhaps Kravchuk thought it would be his legacy to leave Crimea as part of Ukraine, but uh, as an autonomous republic for the Russian elites. Mm -hmm. But no, it didn't work out that way because the Crimean communists could not control uh, the population during the time of economic transition when populist slogans were quite powerful. And so the presidency of Yuri Meshkov was that moment when I think that is the moment when President Kuchma's legacy really needs to be seriously and objectively addressed because Kuchma managed to achieve something important there. He managed basically to dissolve the Crimean presidency, to force the Crimean elites to accept the Ukrainian constitution and to force Russia in the short run to accept that Crimea would be part of Ukraine, of course. Um, it was easier for Kuchma in that he projected himself as a more pro-Russian president than Kravchuk. But in reality, he was not really, especially during his first term. And we should also remember that he was the one who negotiated this colossal friendship treaty with Yeltsin in 1997, which of course now is remembered as a colossal mistake, which you know, prepared really the annexation, but that's not at all how it was seen at the time. At the time, of course, the Ukrainian authorities were holding military exercises with the participation of NATO troops and ships uh, in, in the area, uh, which were a powerful signal to Russia that Ukraine can turn to the West. As well, so the early the early um, measures of the Kuchma presidency in foreign 
a policy were actually quite progressive. And I have to say that it also applied to the early financial stabilization and the introduction of Rivnia and lots of other things. It's, it's a late Kuchma, which I would have many, many issues with. But he was quite successful negotiating uh, against vis-a-vis Russia and, and bringing the Crimea back in some form. But I have to say that this mistake really dates back not to the independence government, but all the way back to Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was already in the 1950s when the authorities in Kiev took the policy of accommodating the Crimean elites. Um, because already in the late 1950s, uh, the term Ukrainization, Ukrainization was unofficially banned in discussing the Crimean issues. And dignitaries from Kiev would go there and give speeches in Simferopol saying, we are not expecting you to, to, to transfer, to switch immediately to the Ukrainian school curriculum. You can make all kinds of exceptions and we don't need to study the Ukrainian language and such. And we would just move one Ukrainian theater company to Crimea, and that would count. And maybe we name a couple of streets after Ukrainian writers. This is what they did, by the way, in Central uh, Name a couple of streets after Ukrainian writers, and that was it. Now, we would understand, right, that the Soviet authorities of Ukraine in the 1950s were operating in rather limited political space. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do much if the leadership in Moscow would see it as nationalism. That would be the end of it. But in the late 1950s, the leadership in Moscow would be Khrushchev, who considered uh, Ukraine his power base and who was the initiator of the Crimean transfer. So I think that was a historical moment. We just talked about you know, historical moments under Kravchuk and Kuchma, uh, historical moments uh, under Pidhirny, uh, uh, um, when, when Ukraine could really uh, interfere more decisively in the cultural and educational sphere in the Crimea, because otherwise it was just the construction of this uh, uh, North North uh, Crimean uh, waterway, which basically restored Crimean agriculture after World War II, created it and you allowed for the development of new fields. Rice was introduced in Crimea, winemaking, rebuilt, reconstructed. So the Ukrainian Republic was doing all of it with its investments, but uh, was taking a very uh, accommodating line uh, in culture and education. And in retrospect, under Khrushchev, there would be historical moments when you could do more, really, especially because he was the initiator of this entire transfer. He wanted to accomplish it already in 1944 with the entire folder in the archives of the uh, Central Committee of the Communist Party of Ukraine about Crimea in 1944. So this proposal was on the table, as we know already then. So uh, the Ukrainian Republic uh, just basically took an accommodating line. And so the subsequent authorities knew what it had to be because they were educated within the system. Kravchuk was the son, the loyal native son of the Ukrainian uh, party apparatus. He knew this is a line in the Crimea. You go there to relax in wonderful sanatoria, but you don't touch the Russian culture there, and you don't touch the Russian elites there, and the Russian mythology there too of Sevastopol. <clears throat> 
uh, your book also has a chapter uh, on the most recent developments um, that uh, involve Ukraine and the U.S. Um, specifically, um, the book mentions some allegations against the Ukrainian politicians um, in the um, uh, 2016 uh, U.S. Uh, election. Would you just briefly comment on those fragments in your book? Mm-hmm. Well, this is how Ukraine made it to the front pages of American newspapers. <laughs> it, it still right? is, and it still is. It looks and like it still is there, and now especially because the investigation yeah. against Hunter Biden is apparently going to widen from his activities in China to his activities in Ukraine as well. But also, it, it, it seems to me that the American politicians see the importance of Ukraine in a very perverted way. So it's not Ukraine as a symbol of democracy, which basically is a kernel of your policies. If you are supporting democracy, you must be the friend of Ukraine. No, it's more like Ukraine is the place where you go to dig dirt on your political opponents because everybody there is corrupt and you can always find something. And that unfortunately was the perception of the American media at the precise time as, as I was working on the book, on the second edition, because all of us were getting phone calls from various journalists trying to understand what is wrong with Ukraine. <laughs> because whoever goes there, uh, like immediately you can blackmail this person for the rest of his or her life because they have been once to Ukraine. right? And, and of course, what uh, Ukraine does serve as, as really the litmus test, because it's not... It's not the Ukrainian government that corrupted Hunter Biden, and there was actually nothing criminal in his activities, except that, of course, he was receiving a huge salary for nothing, right? And that is really the American phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It is very common in American political and economic systems that children and relatives and friends or American politicians sit on boards of various companies just because that grants legitimacy to the company. And that was exactly the same in Ukraine, because uh, the other person invited to to, send, to to sit on the board of uh, directors of Burisma was a former president of Poland, Alexander Kwasniewski. So it was, it was basically um, trying to establish it as a legitimate business with which uh, high-profile Western politicians and family members of high-profile Western politicians would deal because we are such a legitimate business. But that is in itself not a Ukrainian uh, trend. It's not a Ukrainian feature. It is actually very Western and very American. Mm -hmm. That's the part of the West, kind of the worst part of the West, which got transplanted in the Ukrainian conditions. And so um, the Ukrainians do realize that too, because the previous incarnation of the United States was, of course, when American senators and vice presidents visited Ukraine and told Ukrainians that they are an example for the whole world. Mm-hmm. But John McCain, the late John McCain, the Republican senator, who was a frequent visitor to, to Ukraine, and we now have a, a street in Kiev named after him, mm-hmm. and he was very clear about that, that Ukraine is an example too. And in fact, uh, during the Trump presidency, more than once, we have heard Ukraine being brought up in discussions as an example to Americans. So it's not that Ukraine is so bad and so corrupt and such a such black hole in the world where everything disappears on any investments or any support disappears. So whoever goes there comes back tainted for life. 
No, it's actually Ukraine which could provide the Americans with a good example about what to do if Trump decides not to leave the White House in January, <laughs> right, 2021. So, uh, and it was discussed by by a variety of colleagues and, and opinion pieces for for American media because, well, here's the Ukrainian example and the examples of other countries which went through color revolutions and more recent uh, revolutions as well, um, and we would recognize also direct connection between uh, Mr. Trump and uh, Yanukovych and the person of Paul Manafort, the now disgraced uh, electoral strategist, as Ukrainians would say, political technologist, who was uh, serving the Ukrainian elites, uh, actually Ukrainian elites from all camps, not just from the Yanukovych camp, but also from others as well, um, and also representing the worst of this corrupt America to Ukrainians in the same way as John McCain and John Kerry, as vice president, represented uh, uh, to Ukrainians the good and democratic side of America, uh, supporting the Ukrainian self-determination, independence, and territorial integrity. So what, what I think happened in the American media and foreign policy was uh, kind of, uh, I think it's called transparency in psychology, when you don't see your own, your own bad traits, but you assign them mm-hmm. to somebody else. Like, you are so corrupt and so bad, but in reality, it's actually the American system which shows its worst and most corrupt features in Ukraine, but it can also show its best and most democratic features in Ukraine. It is possible as well. And that, I think, is really important for us, uh, specialists on Ukraine who live and work in the West, to keep repeating over and over again. I really like how you emphasize that Ukraine has become this independent body for research. And uh, I I read this uh, statement uh, in terms of extracting Ukraine from this Soviet bloc, from this Soviet monolith, and where Ukraine is presented as something uh, that is not Russia, uh, let's put it this way, and this makes me think about what, uh, in fact, uh, Taras Shevchenko did with his poetry, like he, pre- uh, he he created this image of Ukraine, which can potentially be, be independent. Um, however, I do uh, see a lot of challenges in terms of Ukrainian studies today in the West, and uh, one of them is connected with the fact that geographically Ukraine is very close to uh, Russia. There are some advantages, there are some disadvantages. I think that one of, uh, I don't know, quite ambiguous uh, advantage-disadvantage is that um, many assume that since so many Ukrainians speak uh, Russian, uh, it's possible to study Ukraine um, while learning only the Russian language or to study Ukraine through uh, the Russian studies. So what are these major challenges, in your opinion, in terms of Ukrainian studies today in the West? Well, I think you're completely right, Natalia. This is the biggest challenge, but I would slightly redefine it. It's not just the language, really. It's more of the assumption that any problem in Ukrainian studies has to be addressed through the Russian um, kind of entry point. Mm -hmm. That if you know the Russian culture, if you happen to know something about Russian identity or politics, that is your clue to Ukraine. Whereas this, I think, is a big mistake. The language thing is no longer as defining as it used to be because the new generations in Ukraine do speak English increasingly, right? Ukrainian diplomats and statesmen and stateswomen know English. They can engage with Western um, representatives directly. So it's not just the language thing. It's the attitude. 
but the attitude actually is determined by the training. Mm -hmm. And traditionally in diplomatic corps, both in Canada and the United States, in Canada to a lower degree really, because in Canada there is such a significant population share of Ukrainian Canadians, uh, some of them had served as ambassadors to Ukraine as well, and in important positions within uh, foreign affairs. But in the United States, I think, it's more like uh, the traditional Russianists being assigned the Ukrainian portfolio, both in the State Department and also when it comes to political analysis. And more recently, uh, of course, this is not the only book on, on the war in Ukraine and the revolution in Ukraine, also in my opinion, that's the best one, right? But there were others with similar titles, uh, about the conflict and the crisis in Ukraine, the things that I have left in my past as a historian, talking about the crisis of the conflict in Ukraine. But they were written by people who don't know much about Ukraine. And that was a problem, both to me and to my colleagues here in Canada and the United States as well. Some of them were British or American political scientists who really received most of the information from the Russian sources, um, who then produced versions of Ukrainian history in which Bandera is the president of Ukraine today, like, remains to this day, um, and World War II is still going, going on. And uh, even so, Mr. Putin, of course, in his mythology, has the West now in league with neo-Nazis, right? So to Mr. Putin, the West is not the representative of the allies during the war, it's the representative of evil, of evil, uh, which is together with the alleged neo-Nazis in Eastern Europe and Ukraine too. Uh, it's just amazing to me how many, how many, and also I have to say a few words about the political left in the West, right? Um, so I, I, some of the professors who taught me um, some of the colleagues came from this background. In fact, being a leftist in the West very often meant uh, studying the Soviet Union. But that somehow managed to get translated into loving Russia. And that I don't quite understand because really, okay, so the leftists in the Western academia hate the United States. Okay, so let them hate it. But somehow that results in Mr. Putin being the messiah. And that I don't understand already because for any serious leftist, Russia is like the opposite of your political ideal. It's like the worst incarnation of state capitalism with the ideology which is based uh, on conservative Christian morality. This is what actually the Russian authorities are saying, that they are the most uh, authentic conservative Christian regime on earth. A Christian fundamentalist, if you wish. So how can a person who is serious about class history, uh, the class struggle, and Marxist history possibly embrace Mr. Putin and his, his phantom compatriots in all the countries around him? That is beyond me, really. But I, I have seen it happen repeatedly, over and over again. And I think this transformation of, of the Western left into a pro-Putin uh, public is really troubling. Troubling uh, for the reason that they could be actually um, the voice of reason in the early years 
of post-communist transformation in many ways. But they didn't become it. So the principles about which they like talking so much were not as important as an anti-American position was. Um, so I could understand fascination with the early Yeltsin regime, like the early years of the Yeltsin regime. So I would I would actually have some problems with foreign policy and such. But I could understand that fascination, but not with the Putin regime. Mm -hmm. It's completely beyond me. And I find that uh, Ukraine is being assigned an unfair role in this mind game of Western leftists because they love Putin so much for some strange reason. Putin likes Trump. They don't like Trump, but somehow they like Putin. Okay. So, but then if they like Putin so much, then Ukraine ends up being an example of bad nationalism, of kind of radical and violent nationalism. So all the Western leftists speaking about Ukraine seem to think, as I said, that Bandera is the president and, and there are this enormous violence happening in Ukraine, all kinds of things, and World War II is still being replayed. But really, really, this is so far from the starting position that they think the Western left really compromised itself very seriously. And here, let me return at, at this end of our conversation to the concept of Ukraine as a kernel of truth and democracy in the West. So this is the, the, the litmus test which shows who is who who just speaks about human rights uh, and, and thinking about the disadvantaged and the laboring masses uh, and who just loves Putin so much behind the rhetoric of the laboring masses and then are happy to buy into whatever mythology and whatever propaganda Mr. Putin's state producing. And I have to say that this is one of the most uh, kind of bitter disillusionments uh, in, in the historical profession, in particular in the last decade. Mm -hmm. Because uh, so many people who seem who seemed to be very uh, sober analysts of the early post-communist condition, all of a sudden uh, just cannot stop talking about Ukrainian nationalism. Because this seemed to be the most important thing ever. Mr. Putin's regime is fine. Uh, no freedom of the press in Russia is fine. The Russian occupation is fine. It is the Ukrainian nationalism which is somehow the problem. And also, this is a defining moment, one of those defining moments as well for the West, on which side you are, really. How can we change it? Well, we change it, obviously, with the change in the West itself. Right, because the Ukrainian um, situation, the occupation of Ukraine and the Russian war is a global issue. When Russia decided to interfere actively in Syria, there was actually a very interesting phenomenon in Ukraine. Um, fire was not opened on the front line for several days. There were no casualties on the Ukrainian side for several days. And this is because Russia got distracted elsewhere in the world. And this, I think, demonstrates very clearly that this is no civil war. This is no conflict which, which really is going on on its own without the Russian involvement. It is very much uh, part of the world game of, the, of Russia against the West. Uh, and this game is determined by Soviet legacy. Of course, the Soviets who built a naval base in Syria, who made Syria such an important point in their foreign policy. It was Stalin really who started this whole thing. But um, what it also indicates is that we cannot solve the issue in Ukraine without a resolution on some grander global scale. Mm 
and Ukraine cannot do it on its own. It cannot win the war because that would also mean that it would have to win in all other parts of the world where Russia is engaging in aggressive and responsible uh, behavior. So there is a role for the West here to play, and there is a role for uh, the transformation of Russia. Russia, future transformation of Russia under the conditions of um, sanctions. So we'll see how that one goes. Uh, in the meantime, for us as the Ukrainian specialists in the West, there's, I think, a very important role to play here uh, by pointing out the nature of the Putin regime. Because this really goes to the heart of this uh, rather disgraceful transformation of the Western left which somehow uh, transformed itself into the de defenders of Mr. Putin and the alleged kind of Russian-speaking minority, which is allegedly so much persecuted and such. Um, well, let's talk about the nature of Mr. Putin's regime. Um, and once we do that, there is no way really for them to hide behind the, the rhetoric of, of uh, the rights of the ethnic Russians and such. And I find in my own experience very often that when you talk about Ukraine to a Western audience, the first question you get from the audience is, but what about the rights of ethnic Russians in the Crimea? Shouldn't they have the right, blah, 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 to which I say, well, what about the rights of the Crimean Tatars deported from Crimea by Joseph Stalin one day in May 1944, which was, by the way, the day when Russian, the Russians became the majority in Crimea. Up to that point, there were the pl plurality of population. On that night, they became a majority. Uh, and of course, the person who asks the question is immediately embarrassed <laughs> because, because they're getting the information from the Russian sources, Russian television, Sputnik, all kinds of things. And, and they don't realize that what is going on there is really a justification of Stalinist repressions and Russian imperial conquest. So once you spell that out, the discussion of the Crimean issue becomes very different. Well, thank you so much, Sergei. Uh, thank you so much for your expertise and uh, for your book that uh, guides us through uh, all these complex developments, which are full of all kinds of entanglements that um, allow us to talk about uh, culture, literature, history, politics, and uh, I would say uh, ultimately identity as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Today I spoke with Sergei Kelchik about his book Ukraine, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.